Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. You're two years younger than me, and you don't get digital. And it was at that point that I realized I had to jump ship and reinvent myself for digital before all my hair was gray, and nobody believed I knew what I was talking about. We've all had those moments when you realize the job that you're at isn't where you want to be. You have two choices. You can muscle through and accept it, or reinvent yourself and change the direction of your life. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Michael Hainsworth is a Toronto-based broadcaster and technology enthusiast. He is also the executive producer, editor-at-large, and host of Futurismic, a podcast exploring emerging technology and its impact on our daily lives. Michael, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Well, thank you for having me here today. Well, first of all, a little, a little bit about your background. You know, how did you end up in broadcasting? What interested you about it? <laughs> it's funny. I laugh because I got into radio at 17. And I got into it by way that many people do, which is nepotism. My uncle was the afternoon drive DJ on one of the popular radio stations in Toronto. And I had thought maybe I could get into TV, but I didn't think I was pretty enough for television. And radio seemed like a lot of fun. So I wanted to become a music DJ. And I turned to my uncle and I said, Dan, you know, how can you help? And when I was 16, just before I got into the business, when I was talking to him about this, I sh job shadowed him for the day. So I went to the radio station where he did his, his afternoon drive show, but also I had followed him around his day-to-day -day work as a voiceover artist. And what was really funny from the voiceover work to the radio stuff to the meetings and all of this, every step of the way, he'd, he'd pull me aside and he'd say, are you sure this is what you want to do? And it took me about three years in radio before I realized really what he was saying when he was asking that question. Just the nature of the business, yeah, that it eats its young, that it pays just terribly, particularly for those starting out. And so I wanted to perform. I wanted to entertain and I wanted to educate. And so I thought music radio was the way to go. I got my first job opportunity in Owen Sound, Ontario. The program manager was like, yep, we need a DJ for the weekend mornings and, and the late afternoons. On the, so you're in. Let me work some stuff out and I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks came and went and nothing. And so I called him up and I got, oh, I'm sorry, he doesn't work here anymore. We fired him. Um, and we just filled that DJ position you were asking about. Uh, but we have a news position. And at the time, I had made the move from uh, pushing buttons behind the scenes in music radio at 17, where I would go to work at 11.30 p.m., pull the music off the back shelf, pull the commercial carts off the wall, get my show lined up, and pull the reel-to-reel -reel tape out of the DJ's booth, because, of course, the DJ doesn't want to be there at midnight to 5.30 a.m., and I would do everything but actually talk. And then at 5.30 when the morning show started, I'd get on the subway and go to high school, sleep in the cafeteria until 8.40 a.m. when the bell rang for classes, and then by 2 in the afternoon, that kind of lifestyle would catch up to me. I'd fall asleep in the middle of class, which turned out to be, ironically, business class, which later on in my life turned out to be 20 years worth of my career talking about business news. 
you know, I, I almost feel like I should have been like the old Groucho Marx TV show. The secret word of the day should have been cart because talking to a broadcaster at some point, somebody was going to mention cart because that's what everybody does. Yeah, no, radio is such an odd business. And it's funny that, you know, your first experience of it was somebody not calling you back and then you're finding out that they were gone, which is another aspect of the industry. It's very fluid in how, how long people stay around. You were suggested as a guest to us by Amber Healy, who's one of the producers on this podcast, and you worked with her on the Geeks and Beats podcast. Tell me about that experience. That was a remarkable experience. We did eight seasons, me and uh, a radio legend named Alan Cross. He's a music historian. He's been a Canadian music radio staple for 30-some-odd years now. And the weird thing was, was that at the time we decided to do this, my wife and his wife had become friends. And they had decided that they we should all go out for dinner one night. And it was very surreal to be sitting in this fabulous Italian restaurant on Danforth Avenue in Toronto, sitting across from a guy who, when I was going to college, I listened to, and I listened to as an influence for my delivery. And so he says, we should do a podcast together. And I'm thinking, how can you turn that down? This is a radio legend, someone who, while you were you know, on the bus to radio school, I went to Humber College, listening to this guy says we should work together. Well, of course we're going to work together. And it was really quite a, a remarkable experience for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which was that he reminded me of me and his wife reminded me of my wife, but 15 years older. So we built this podcast. And the funny thing about it was he's a music guy. I wanted to be a music guy. I never really became a music guy. I became a news guy. And so he handled the music side of the equation. I said, I don't really know anything about music. I'm a geek. So Geeks and Beats was how we evolved the, the nature of, of our, our relationship. I would talk about the geek stuff and explain the geek to him and by extension, the listener, and he would do the same to me with the music side of the equation. And we developed this really great back and forth kind of old man cross, young punk Michael, uh, even though, you know, I'm pushing 50. And it was a great dynamic for that kind of environment to explore not just music, but the geekitude that I possess as well. Okay. You said that you did that for six years. When did you start doing that? Well, we did it for eight years, and we, we just pulled the plug on it by way of COVID. About this time last year, we were looking at our lives, and, and Alan was like, listen, I got way too much on my plate. We're going to have to end that relationship. And we did. And it was a fantastic time we spent together. But the problem that I always had was trying to break through. I found that in the podcasting world, you either create a podcast and 100 people download it, 1,000 people download it, or you're Joe Rogan and a million people download it. There seems to be very little in between. And so we had constantly tried to push through. And I think the most we had ever managed to accomplish was about 4,500 to 5,000 listeners per episode that would download. And by the time we wrapped up our eight seasons together, we had breached the 1 million download mark. We continue to get downloads, which is a weird thing to me. But uh, that's part of that whole thing. One of the reasons I was asking about when you started the podcast and you're thinking back eight years, I mean, that was really kind of the beginning where people were in a wider sense, were becoming aware of podcasting, especially broadcast people. You know, and there's still broadcast people who are sort of resistant to the idea of a podcast because they don't see the business side of it. And maybe that was one of the problems eight years ago 
I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about this podcast of uh, starting a podcast back then without necessarily uh, having understanding that, you know, like you said, you may have a few hundred people as your listeners. Why do it? Why? I mean, what was it that aside from the fact of, of working with Alan, what was it that made you think podcasting? This is this is the thing that we should be doing. I had actually done a podcast for five years prior to that. Top secretly. It was a show that a buddy and I had done together. We used pseudonyms because I didn't have permission from my broadcaster to do it. And this is the the thing about, and we, we can go down this rabbit hole too if you're interested. The mainstream media industry is scared shitless of digital. Always have been, continue to be. They've always been dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th century, let alone the 21st century. And so I didn't even bother to ask my employer if I had permission to launch a podcast. I just did it secretly under a pseudonym and and no one will ever know it, it was me. And we did that for a few years and I really cut my teeth on that and learned a lot about the nature of podcasting. But at the end of the day, it's an industry that is unaware of how to monetize it, and fearful of not possessing control over the end product. I remember having a conversation with an executive within CTV who had no interest in podcasting because people could download it and keep a copy of the MP3 file on their hard drive, and he would have no way of changing the commercial that might be a pre-roll or have no way of taking back that content if they decided they didn't want the consumer to own it. And that just speaks volumes to the disconnect between the digital era in which we now operate and the mainstream media that is continuing to to flounder. Like one of the most popular shows on the network I I worked at for 18 years, the Business News Network, was a phone-in show for stock advice. And while financial television is very charts and graphs oriented, You can strip all the video off almost every single show and turn that into a podcast. No interest in doing that because they couldn't figure out how to monetize it. And quite frankly, if they couldn't figure out how to monetize it, I should give myself a little bit of a break that I was unable to fully take advantage of the monetization opportunities that came with 5,000 listeners on Geeks and Beats. My experience, because I was employed by a radio station, the particular station I was at didn't have a huge radio audience it was you know connected to a large daily news radio station and it always sort of boggled my mind when i would i would go into different meetings corporate meetings there was the prejudice that you mentioned against digital but there's also a lot of a lack of imagination that you, know, you can't make money at this or that what you just said you know people are going to own it they're going to download it well you know think about when people started to be able to buy, you know, VHS tapes, cassette tapes or albums, just because something's, you know, in their hands does not mean that you can't somehow market and monetize it. Like I said, a lack of imagination. It was one thing that, that always just sort of astounded me. And the other thing is so much of it was a perspective that we know what audio is. We know how to make money with audio. And a lot of their thinking didn't really kind of involve how people were actually consuming their product. And as a digital revolution was going on and people were learning through things like DVRs and, and apps that they were able to pretty much program their own content, they were less interested in, in terrestrial radio. So the challenge then became is like, okay, how can you enter that space and how can you monetize it? One of the things that the industry never really seemed to wrap its head around was 
that the ice cream moment is dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, the concept in radio of the ice cream moment has been with us since the dawn of radio, cars, and grocery shopping. The idea being that you're on your way home from the grocery store, you've got that quart of ice cream in the trunk, and you know it's melting on the way home, but you're listening to the radio, and as you pull into your driveway, the content you're listening to is so consuming, so engaging, that you, you just have to sit there idling the car, listening until the end of the segment, because you don't want to miss a thing. That doesn't exist in the digital era anymore, and it changes the way we program tremendously. And the industry hasn't caught up to that whole concept. The perfect example of that was um, my final few days in television news, where they had cut back, cut back, cut back, to the point where we had cut past the fat, through the, the muscle, and into the bone. I had a really bad show producer and a really bad director. Now you can give a guy like me a bad director and I can work with that with the show producer. You can give me a bad show producer and I can work with the director to make that show good. But if you give me that one-two punch, that sends me to the mat. So it required me to go into the boss's office one day and say, listen, all of this Michael walking and talking, doing the news while running around from screen to screen and pointing at stuff and clicking on things, that's got to end. I got to go back to the anchor desk, sit down and have two screens, one screen that has my job and another screen that has everybody else's job too. So if we're going to rebuild my entire show from the ground up to accommodate that we're no longer walking and talking, we don't have all these neat little sort of smoke and mirrors effects for the show, why don't we focus on mobile first? So my recommendation, first thing we do, drop the show open. The animation opening is broadcast masturbation for the people who work there. The listener, the viewer, they don't give a rat's ass about a 60-second show animation. They just want to get to the news. While we're at it, let's pull the coming up A, B, C, and D. When was the last time you were listening to something and went, oh, A doesn't interest me, oh, B doesn't interest me, oh, but C interests me. I'm going to stick around for 25 minutes waiting for C to show up. Let's get rid of that. That's a waste of time. Let's get right to the show. And if we're going to get right to the show, let's do it for mobile. Let's take that two-line banner at the bottom of the screen, throw out the lower third, turn it into a single sentence, giant letters, so that my fading eyeballs can see it on a 4.3-inch screen because nobody's watching this shit on a 43-inch screen anymore. And all of these ideas turned to my boss and presented them. And his response was, well, that's all well and good, but we need to make TV for TV. And like, you're two years younger than me and you don't get digital. And it was at that point that I realized I had to jump ship and reinvent myself for digital before all my hair was gray and nobody believed I knew what I was talking about. And it's funny because a lot of the things that you're saying, those are the same things that many frustrated journalists who are working at like stayed newspapers or community newspapers where all the ad revenue was disappearing and they just had to keep cutting the staff and cutting the staff and at the end of the day they're creating a product that nobody really wants cares about creating or or reading because they don't understand that the consumption of news has changed you know still sticking on radio i was on a in a meeting where somebody was talking about you know this is a news station and they were like well you know we what we know is that you know every time the lights you see the car lights ahead of you turn turn red that you know people turn on their radio to find out what the traffic is and so they built their whole you know news style around making sure there were traffic updates every five minutes right and you know they're saying well they have to do that but not thinking that 
there's a good chance that a lot of people out there aren't listening to your radio station that may be listening to something on, you know, a podcast or something. And at the same time, they have something like Google Maps or Waze that's going to tell them instantaneously that they need to get off at this exit because there's traffic further on. They still have this old thinking of this is how we need to present it. And it's strapping in all their other news content. Well, you know, I can't go into an in-depth story that people might care about because I need to get off in two minutes so that they can do traffic for three minutes in a, a sports minute and, and weather. So there can be another one and a half minute news thing that people aren't really that engaged in. And it's, it's just so incredible. And then they wonder why, you know, well, why are we losing audience? We need to figure out a way to continue making these bad decisions. It's my view, and this is the death of radio has been announced, you know, every 10 years or so for the last 50 years, or at least since the advent of color television. But it's my belief that radio dies with the boomer generation. Anyone younger than 50 isn't turning on the radio when they see brake lights of the car in front of them anymore. They've already got the app. They're already running the app. They've got a voice assistance. Like, I've got a button in my car that directly connects to my phone. And if I need to get around something, if my phone hasn't already told me how to get around it, which is common with Apple Maps and CarPlay and all of these types of technologies, I can have that answer to my question, whatever the question be, whether it be traffic-related or when my you know daughter's birthday is, all of that through the push of a button on my steering wheel. So the idea idea that you need to program content around an event that is no longer yours to control is absolutely mind-boggling to me. And one of the things that I've, I've really loved about my new digital media world is that I have multiple podcasts now. I've got the Futurismic podcast that is more focused on the future of technology, particularly for the telecom industry. I have another podcast called the C.D. Howe Institute podcast, which is Canada's most respected think tank. And we talk to people not for seven minutes at a time like I used to in television. I'd have the C.D. Howe Institute on my show to talk about the state of the economy or whatever government decisions been made. And if I'm lucky, I'll get seven minutes, but I'm probably only going to get five. Suddenly, in podcasting, I've got 30 minutes. I don't get four questions in. I get 14 questions in. And they're detailed. They're in-depth. They're valuable intel for the listener as well. And so I feel like I'm giving back to my listeners way more today than I gave back to my viewers just three years ago when I was standing in front of a TV camera. To your point earlier, when you were talking about a business TV show, if you strip away the video and you you could just use the audio because there's an audience to consume things like that in their car or while they're you know cleaning their house or whatever. You know, that's kind of the beauty. And it's weird because that's the old, was one of the old selling points of radio is this is something that, that accompanies you on what you're doing. You know, I don't want to get on, the, get on the soapbox and sit there and say that podcasting is the answer to everything, but it's certainly, or this necessarily replacing radio. But I think as far as audio consumption goes, I think people are, as they, as they become more comfortable and they begin to understand where they can find the episodes that interest them, they're going to just gradually go to that. Just because the same reason that television, the digital has revolutionized the way people watch television, because they have more choice and more control. And again, you know, you know, you don't, you don't control, 
it's this is an old thing that I that I've talked about in the podcast. You know, newsrooms don't own the news. They own the content they create, but the news story is out there for anybody to tell in any way in any form that they can. And and, and if you're not if you don't recognize that, then you then you're just going to get sort of stuck in this one lane that you're never that, that you're never going to be able to reach a, a wider audience. The worst thing that could have happened to my television newsroom while I was there was someone decided to buy a 55-inch TV screen and mount it right in the middle of the newsroom where everyone could see. And it was a dashboard from the website and social media. And so you could see what was getting hits on the web. And the problem with that is that my my people would come to me and say, hey, this thing is blowing up on the web. We need to do more of that. And my response was always, no, we already did that. We need to do something new that will blow up on the web again. Otherwise, it's all just derivative. There's a, a diminishing returns component to just following what was popular seven hours ago, two days ago on the web. But this is the nature of the, the business today is you've got all of these people who grew up in a more traditional news gathering and news dissemination environment, and they're trying to desperately cling on to what they already know, as opposed to be willing to say, you know what, maybe there's all this is all new and we need to take a fresh new approach to this. And it, it's just mind boggling to me. Uh, it, it drove me nuts whenever, you know, the managing editor would come up to me and say, hey, this thing is blowing up on the Web. Well, so what? So what? That doesn't necessarily reflect on what we're actually doing or what we should be should be covering. And it's funny, you know, listening to Mark Maron's podcast, and this is something he said several, you know, I can remember several times him saying this when he was interviewing somebody and they were complaining about, you know, the politics of the world as it is currently. And one of the things they were like, well, do you remember back when we had just three news stations? You know, this idea that maybe that was better, that... <laughs> that we we had this this sort of you know high walled off white male newsroom news company directing this is the most important news of the day ignoring all of the other stories that are out there and basically telling you this is the most it was easier it was simpler I don't necessarily think it was the best certainly. can I tell you I, yeah. I'm going to disagree with you wholeheartedly oh, okay I, I think that if um, if we could have stuck with three TV networks, if we could have stuck with seven radio stations, I think we would have been a hell of a lot better off than what we got. And what we got was cable news. A 24-hour news cycle was suddenly invented through CNN. And, and at the end of the day, Fox News is what I'm bitching about more than anything else. But what we did was we created an appetite for 24-hour news on demand. What we did not have was 24 hours worth of news to fill that demand. And what we got instead was a variation on the it's blowing up on the web. And it really came to a, a fine point with the O.J. Simpson trial. And even prior to the O.J. Simpson trial, it started with the slow speed Bronco chase through Los Angeles. That taught the news industry that people were willing to be glued to their sets for something. The problem is, is we don't have slow speed chases with popular football slash comedic actor stars every single day. And so what we ended up with is a 24 hour news cycle with about an hour and a half's worth of news and 23 and a half hours worth of people shoveling bullshit 
about the analysis of that 90 minutes worth of, of news. Opening up the door to pundits and prognosticators who had no business talking about what they were talking about because the poor producer behind the scenes or the segment producer had to fill up space in the lineup that hour. And, oh my God, this guy returned my call. Let's put him on. And it's funny, we, we haven't quite learned the lesson of 2016. And there were people who are, who discussed it afterwards, this, this idea that anything that Donald Trump said or did or any speech that he gave was immediately put on live television because... Well, it was because he was saying outrageous, unprecedented things for somebody who was running for president for the sensation aspect. So it was a, you know, this is a source that is going to generate content for us the rest of the day because we're going to have what he says. Then we're going to have the pundits on the other side, you know, put out their releases and reaction to it. And then we're going to spend the rest of the day repeating it and then doing this. So, you know, the fact that a man didn't spend any money, didn't spend as much as other people on advertising is is understandable because it's somebody who understood the nature of, of cable news and, you know, our current, the current way we, uh, we cover stories. And you brought up the most critical problem I've got with the 24-hour news cycle is exactly that process of let's get individual A on. And while we're talking to that guy, somebody behind the scenes is, you know, dialing their fingers to the bone, trying to find uh, a, an alternative viewpoint, a counterpoint. The absence of balance is one of the things that bothers me the most. Um, you could argue as a journalist that if you looked at the programming day on the whole, it was balanced. But listeners, viewers, they're not consuming the content the same way the people who are making it are consuming the content. And so you may have a viewer watch something or a listener hear something for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and they're only getting one viewpoint. And then an hour and a half later, we finally got another side of the coin to this discussion. Uh, and you and I can have a whole separate conversation about, you know, the, the whole idea of fair and balanced and that just because, you know, somebody said something doesn't mean you report it. But because we have that disconnect, people are consuming content and getting only one side of the view. Whereas if we still have that traditional old school ABC, NBC, CBS type environment, it would be the obligation of that person who has a six o'clock newscast to put together to get both sides of that and to present both sides in a fair and balanced manner that works. Whereas, you know, we all know that fair and balanced is no longer fair and balanced anyway, but that's, as I say, a whole different rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, again, that's that's what happens when you have have revenue driving your decision making, which is, you know, what they what they predicted in the movie network 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, we're, we're not going to figure this out. <laughs> because it, what I find disheartening is in the, you know, in the last five years, there's been a lot of talk about fake news, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what we need to do. But it seems that you know, just as people are holding on to these old ideas about what radio should be, they have these old ideas of what newsrooms need to be. And they're not necessarily, what are the, I don't know, the, the guiding principles that we need to carry over and somehow adapt to this new system? Because I don't think that the principles balance of telling all, all sides of the story of being transparent in the way that you cover things, you know, all those are good things, but I feel sometimes that they just they're just being applied poorly. Just the, the idea that, well, you know, I can run this really outrageous statement as long as I have somebody who disagrees with it 
whether they're an expert on it, whether it really is an opposite thing, this idea of creating this false equivalency of that these two statements give me a pass so that I can post this thing that maybe I shouldn't have posted or, or maybe isn't necessarily newsworthy, but I am because this is what my audience is interested in. The audience is a terrible judge of what they should be consuming. It sounds antithetical to the digital age. It does, but the reality is your drunk uncle who claimed he did his own research on vaccines, that's the problem that we've created. We have created an industry of content without an understanding of what it means, without context. And it's the issue of not getting the facts out there in a, a timely fashion, the issue of not having fair and balanced reporting. It's a combination of laziness on the part of the journalist, that combined with an industry that has culled its herd so much that there's an absence of institutional knowledge within it anymore. And a bunch of issues like that. Like I, I remember when I wrote something for a senior anchor while I was in radio and he pulled me aside and he said, Michael, listen, you need to bury the date reference in a sentence. The last thing someone thinks about and the last thing they retain is the last thing they hear. And if the last thing they hear is the date, they're not listening to the content. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Oh my God, you're right. And that helped me become a better writer in just a little bit of a way. It was just, just, just a little bit, move the needle a notch. But that guy would have been fired years ago. He retired, of course, and it's been years since I, uh, I had that, that lesson. But today we don't have those journeyman broadcasters, those journeyman journalists who have been in the trenches for any length of time to be able to pull a kid aside and say, listen, here's how you make your craft just that much better. And so there's, there's an absence of that. And then that combined with looking at the clock and going, oh my God, in 20 minutes, I'm going to have a seven and a half minute hole in my show. So let's just grab whoever responds to my plea for a talking head and get them on. And then your drunk uncle watches one guy say one thing with one opinion. And 45 minutes later, when he's no longer watching, that's when we get the opposite opinion or the contrary statement and attempt to balance things. Well, your drunk uncle just ran off and decided that's the reality now, and he's going to run with it. The solution, of course, is money. The problem is, is how do we get there? That's for sure. And the facts, we've had digital uh, journalism for, you know, over 15, almost 20 years, and there's no one successful model that's going to rival what used to be, you know, display ads in newspapers and commercials on, on network television. I mean, there are people who are making money in this space, certainly. You know, sadly, we need that pretty quickly, because you talk about the lack of you know, experience in newsrooms. I mean, a similar thing is going on in journalism schools and broadcasting schools where the curriculums are all over the place because what's really going on in the newsroom is not necessarily being ta what's taught in the classroom. And, you know, it's, we're in a bad situation. <laughs> you know, I didn't think we were, this is what this podcast was going to be about, but I do <laughs> want to talk. What did you want it to be about? I don't know. I don't know. Well, this is, this is a great this is a great discussion, which is what, what I always hope for. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about Future Rhythmic. I want to talk about being a technology reporter. When I introduced you, I described you as a technology enthusiast. And obviously, as, as we're talking here, you, know, you sort of have worked in different spaces in, in television, radio, and digital. 
so what is it you like about this place that you're at right now? I like the freedom. I like the fact that now when I tweet something, I don't have to ask what the president of CTV News is going to think about it. That was a huge weight to be lifted off my shoulders. And it was actually more than just a weight because it was something that I had to think about. And I thought about it hard. And what my conclusion was, was that if I say something on Twitter that offends or upsets someone, it could lead to a loss of a client, which has a much greater impact than just being hauled into the boss's office and have a strip torn off me. But at the same time, I'm not crazy. At least I don't think I am. I'm not way out there on one side of the spectrum or another or at least I don't think I am. And so if anybody's got a problem with something I'm saying, enough so that they don't want to be a client of mine, well, then I don't want to be a, a producer of their content. So there's been a tremendous amount of freedom. It's insanely more lucrative than what I was making in traditional media because my skill set over the last 30 years that I've carried with me since I got into the business at 17 is valuable to a whole host of organizations. And I feel like a bit of an imposter on all about journalism because I hung up my journalist hat by and large to create content for corporations. And there's been a huge shift in from more of a cultural perspective for me internally. The idea of sending someone a list of your questions that you're going to ask them in advance is ridiculous in proper journalism. But in many cases, I'm not doing proper journalism anymore. I'm storytelling. And that storytelling has to have a certain bent towards my client. Fortunately, because I choose my clients and I can fire my clients, I'm not saying anything I don't agree with. I'm not presenting content that I think is inaccurate. And I'm not presenting content that makes the client look bad, which you know is, is at the end of the day, the one thing that makes it not journalism is I have to be conscious and, and careful about how I craft my, my content at the end of the day. So there's that kind of weirdness to it, but the flexibility is tremendous. What happened was in 2018, I, it marked my 30th year in broadcasting. And so I had to, to think about what I wanted to do at 30 years, because that's a milestone. You know, it's not a milestone getting a pink slip at 31 years. Nobody gives a rat's ass that you've been in the business for 31 years if you've been laid off. But if at 30 years you go, you know what? thanks, everybody, I'm done, and you jump? Well, there's a certain cachet associated with that, and I wanted to do that, particularly because I had seen that the industry was you know, circling the drain, and it was only a matter of time before some bean counter somewhere sorted a spreadsheet a certain way and went, okay, he's next, get him out. And they haven't replaced me in the shop either. They haven't hired a bunch of new people as a result of the, the savings of my salary either. But I took time off to figure out if I could even just do it. So I took the month of February off to wrap my head around my ego. And I, I took those 28 days to ask myself, who is Michael Hainsworth if he's not TV's Michael Hainsworth? And once I concluded, no, I can do this. But then I spent the month of March with my lawyer extracting me from my relationship with the, with the broadcaster. But during that short month of February, I met with a former I'm going to say colleague, I never worked with him directly, who walked away from being a television news reporter and became a real estate agent. And I asked him, I said, do you miss it? It was the only question I had for him when I asked him and I cold called him for a coffee. I said, do you miss it? And without hesitation, his response was, of course I miss it. But you know what I don't miss? My son's hockey games. 
And sure enough, after I jumped ship and started up my own media organization, that summer we had enlisted my 10-year-old daughter in culinary camp at the Harborfront camp in my city. And I got an email from the camp in the middle of the summer saying at 1 p.m., would you like to come down and have your child cook you lunch? Just the thought of being able to walk into this building in the middle of my workday and have my child with with the apron on and the the whole nine yards beaming ear to ear that she was, you know, making lunch for dad. I, I had a chance to do that for the first time in my entire career and for the first time in my child's life. And so I fully understood the benefit of my new world, which was the incredible flexibility that came with setting your own hours. You can tell you're a broadcaster because you know how to button a story with, uh, <laughs> the, yeah, I don't miss my son's uh, baseball game and, and your, the story about your, your daughter, and not to be dismissive or anything. I think that's that just shows you that you have those skills. And as far as being on this podcast, we have a very encompassing definition of, of what journalism is and, and who we talk to. And some of the people we talk to, like you, you know, have experience or have left the, the, the industry, but they're still using a lot of the same skills. And the, the thing that I found really interesting about what you were saying is, you know, when you do not have that boss above you that you have to worry about what you're saying, you, you're the boss and you're the one who has to make that decision. And you're the one who's going to say, no, nah, I'm not going to send out this tweet because, you know, it's going to make me look bad or maybe it's going to reflect on my ability to get business or something. And so then you become your self-editing system and you do that because you have the freedom now to do it. You get to, to put yourself in the box you want to be. Just one point I, I wanted to okay. make about that, about, about the, the, the tweets specifically okay. and, and the, the perception and, and all of that. One of the worst pieces of advice I ever got in the industry was the one that I adhered to the most. And I credit my middling success. I like to joke that I'm not famous. I'm specialty TV famous. Like people spot me on the street and they go, I recognize that guy, but I can't remember from where. That kind of thing. So that's my middling success as, you know, the number one financial news broadcaster in Canada for 18 years. And it was back from my radio DJ experience where I was told, never try to make the audience laugh. It's very difficult to make an audience laugh. You can make a a certain percentage of that audience laugh, but you'll probably never make them all laugh. And you'll certainly not be able to make them all laugh all of the time. But what you can do is you can make them smile. You can give them a smirk. And you can make almost your entire audience smile all the time if you're good at that job. And what that did for me was that taught me not to take chances, not to take risks, and not to present me who I really am to my audience, but who I thought my audience wanted me to be. Give them a little sliver of me, but not too much. That kind of attitude got me the success I had. It got me this lovely house. It got me the car. It got me the the wife and the 2.3 children type thing. But it didn't get me knockout success. I never knocked it out of the park. And it was one of those things where I now have the opportunity to do whatever I want and to say whatever I want and to be exactly my personality. And if people like it, that's a measure of success. If they don't, Here's the, here's the trick, the recognition that not everybody's going to like what you do. Most people are not necessarily going to like what you do, but those aren't your people. 
Focus on the people who like what you're doing, like what you're saying, like the way you're saying it. Those are your people. And don't listen to those who say, oh, yeah, you, you shouldn't have done that. I didn't think that was funny at all, or I didn't think that was clever, or I didn't like that idea, or I didn't like the way you presented something. Forget those people. Those aren't your people. Focus on the people who do like what you do and the way you do it. And I wish I had done that on day one, because either I would have been your next Joe Rogan, or I could have been a smoldering crater in the industry, one or the two, but maybe somewhere in the middle, but perhaps much more successful than I ended up being. And yet you're happy where you're at, I assume, because you seem happy. Well, yes let's not get into no. the argument about what happy is. Yes and no. I'll, t I'll tell you what, what I'm not happy about is I spent 30 years knowing exactly what was expected of me at every given moment of the day. If you said, well, it's 1.50 p.m., what would you have been working on in TV land if you were still in TV land? I could rhyme off exactly. Sure, the stories change every single day, but the, the process has to be regimented and it has to be exactly the same. And now that's not my case. My world, like I've got three things that are, are due. I've got an unread mailbox with 32 items in it, and I might not get to almost any of them today. And that is just a weird lack of rigid structure that I kind of miss. But otherwise, yes, I'm quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> now that you mention it, there are a bunch of things. And certainly as enjoyable as this conversation is, I'm sure you do want to get back to some of those, some of those things. Michael, this has been a great conversation. I really, you know, I, I think you brought up a number of topics that we don't always get to talk about when it comes to journalism, certainly in, a, in broadcasting and podcasting as well. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for your time. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick capre wrote our theme music Emilio brust helped with our booking steph thomas is our social media manager and i'm your host michael o'connell thanks for listening <laughs>